0: Welcome to Art on the Verge, the new 74 podcast series hosted by Bryce Wolkowitz, discussing the drastically changing dynamics of the art world in the wake of the pandemic, from the way art is produced to how it's presented and experienced. We will also explore where creative thinking can take us and the potential of a collaborative culture in the new world. Let's join Bryce Wolkowitz in conversation with artists, curators, educators and collectors.
1: Sharon Copeland-Hurwitz is a contemporary print specialist, fine art publisher, independent curator, and the founder of Copeland-Hurwitz Art Advisory. Sharon has published special editions with Ellsworth Kelly, Jasper Johns, and Christopher Woe, and is co-publisher of the forthcoming print portfolio in celebration of the 150th anniversary of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Her publications are in collections of numerous museums, including the Museum of Modern Art, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Yale University Art Gallery, among others. Sharon is co-author of Open Studio, Do-It-Yourself Art Projects by Contemporary Artists, and is the author of John Baldessari, a catalog resume of prints and multiples. Sharon was previously a specialist in contemporary prints at Sotheby's and Christie's. She's actively involved with several fine art organizations, including the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, And I am pleased to welcome my distinguished colleague and friend to this edition of Art on the Verge. How are you, Sharon?
0: I'm well, Bryce. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. It's uh, fabulous to be speaking with you today. So, So, Sharon, my humble beginnings began right here in the Big Apple, born and raised in New York City. You, on the other hand, a product of Old Dominion, Richmond, Virginia. So speak, if you would, about your experience growing up in Virginia and more specifically your early encounters with
0: art in your life. Oh, um, well, I do credit growing up in Richmond to informing what I love now and what I do now. Um, I was lucky because um, I spent a lot of my time at the Virginia Art Museum um, and there's an incredible benefactors there, the Lewises, who really um, were very close to a lot of the pop artists and populated the museum um, early on. And so as a young kid, I spent a lot of time there. And they also not only influenced me with the art, but they did with the architecture because they employed, um, not at the museum, but at their businesses, um, this architectural firm, SITE, which um, was, I think, like such an important postmodern architectural firm and I think that really also informed my interest in art and in architecture and I was just lucky because I got to spend all my time at the museum um, and just you know that's where I fell in love with everything that was around me.
1: Now you mentioned that the Lewises uh, were deep in pop art which coincidentally um, I grew up around as well pop and uh, color field and in my household, were were there any works in particular that really spoke with you?
0: Oh gosh, there are a lot. And and while I don't get to go back often, I think about the works, um, and not even the works that are things that I gravitate to now, but things like a Dwayne Hanson sculpture, things that sort of were arresting at the time as a young child to see something that I didn't think was art. Um, in a museum context and to sort of be out sculptural, like in your face. And it was kind of work like that, but for sure um, their holdings are really vast and important in terms of early Edrache paintings um, and also Warhol paintings and Tebow and, and things like that. And the decorative arts, which they collected and um, supported throughout the museum. So, but I think it was the works that let me see an entire world, um, that and all the possibilities. And it was, you know, the museum on the one hand was a very quiet place, but the contemporary art area is a very loud um, place. It's a place that I really got to um, to see what I thought was really innovative and exciting.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, we met at Christie's 20 years ago, you were working in the print department, I was working in the photographs department. Speak, if you will, about your time at both Christie's and earlier at Sotheby's and how prints and multiples became your area of expertise.
0: Um, well, like, you know, I'm sure you had a similar experience and I think the auction world has changed so much, right, since we've been there. So, you know, what I'm speaking about might be historic at this point. Um, but, you know, when we were there, I um, knew I wanted to work in the contemporary art area. I was fortunate enough to have a mentor in in college, a great curator who I worked at, worked for at the um, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, who really pushed me to go to Sotheby's. I really thought I wanted to be in the curatorial world, but he made it very clear that I had a much more commercial sensibility. And I'm grateful to him for sort of, guiding me, but when I went to Sotheby's, you know, I, I took what I could get and, and so I sort of interned around and and floated around and finally, um, I wanted to be in the contemporary art department, but found the contemporary print department as, uh, you know, as an incredible opportunity because, um, that's what was available and it was a sister division. And so, um, it's funny because I always thought that I would move over And what I found very quickly is that I fell in love with the discipline. And I also found in love with the collegiality of of that world because um, it is much more of an exchange. And at the end of the day, what I've always found with prints and multiples is that artists are really serious about them. And um, it's given me an opportunity to work directly with artists where I probably wouldn't have if I had gotten into the contemporary art department, because as you know, it's um, a really competitive area and um, and and extremely um, difficult to navigate. And 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 so I had a lot more autonomy and freedom. Um, and I loved being at Sotheby's. And I think when we were there, again, I think the market's changed and what the audience wants is, has changed. But I think of our generation, um, not to be sentimental, but it was, we were probably like the last generation of expertise as being sort of the most important um, signifier in terms of doing your job. And that's not to say that all the specialists now and the and the catalogers don't have expertise they do of course but in terms of what the audience what the collector wanted that was sort of like what we were taught you know condition um quality all those things where i think now the motivations and what the audience wants and what the collectors want there there are many more other things that are at play and so that idea of expertise is not the most necessarily valued. I'm not passing judgment. I just think it's completely changed. So um, I I feel grateful when we were there to, because I feel like we've learned, we learned things that, you know, I got to touch catalog uh, thousands and thousands of things and also had exposure directly with collectors. And, you know, now, you know, collectors don't necessarily need to go to the auction house. It's still the nucleus. It's still the place where everyone gathers, but they do it electronically. So you don't have that face to face. You don't meet the collector. You don't have the opportunity to show them something. Um, And so I think um, we were really lucky uh, to get all of that knowledge. And then that, you know, I did that for many years at Sotheby's. I loved it. Um, But at the end of the day, I went over to Christie's because they made it very appealing to me to go over. And at the time when I did it, um, it was still considered a little taboo and a little, um, you know, you, it was, you know, still the very much Coke or Pepsi sort of scenario where you um, had an allegiance. And, and I certainly drank the Kool-Aid with Sotheby's and really felt like that was my DNA. So when I went over to Christie's, it was a huge adjustment for me. I mean, you and I, I think, we're almost maybe a chair away um, from each other. But culturally, it, w- it was a big adjustment. And at that point, I sort of realized that I wanted to do something else. And um, so my, my stay at Christie's was um, probably a little too short. Um, but I quickly realized I wanted to go off on my own.
1: Sure. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what, what transpired after Christie's in a minute. But I do agree with you. I think historically speaking, the art market, as you mentioned, has always been built upon human relationships, right? With buyers and sellers coming together to view our works in person, particularly at auction. And yet, Artnet receives 3.7 million visits per month. You know, collectors are able and eager to bid 24 hours a day from any time zone whenever they have a free moment. So I think, um, you know, this move to online um, is so prevalent, particularly today. I'm curious, to, to, to chat a little bit further with you about the emergence of the print market, prints and multiples, long and afterthought, not too dissimilar to photography for many, many years, is gaining momentum. So what are your thoughts around the emergence of the prints and multiples market?
0: Um, well, I think publishers would say that it's been a, a steady sort of or it's been an ebb and flow, but but I think what maybe what you're speaking about is that there is a cross pollination that you see um, with you know brands with um, sort of there are other ways in uh, to prints and multiples where there's a lot of engagement from um, companies and and places outside of a traditional publisher, and so that's kind of really exciting because there used to be, as you know, this idea of high and low. And now I think that has been totally um, dismissed, and there isn't that kind of um, uh, hesitance to sort of navigating, you know, different places to make things. So I think in the additions market, um, while I think there are fewer and fewer people who specifically collect in that category. And they they have their aspirations are always and always have been. I remember always being at at Sotheby's and Chrissy's, feeling like that that I was a service department because at the end of the day, the fuel was always, you know, the, the fuel of 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 the auction um, and the focus obviously was the contemporary art department. And at that time the impress mod, imp- and, and some jewelry. So it, it it was always, you know, um not a stepsister, but it it just, you know, a service area. Um, Now I think it's a little different because again, I think um, people are understanding and and feeling really comfortable about making things. um, And um, I think there's just an opening up uh, of that whole market that just wasn't there 15 years ago. Um, And so, but there's still the traditional print publishers that are making incredible artisanal, Work with artists, but they're then also, you know, people who don't have that kind of platform, but are also engaging artists to make things all the time.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So tell us about your call to John Baldessari to write his print resume shortly after your time oh, at was, Christie's. What was that yeah. like?
0: Well, that wouldn't happen now. So that's, again, that's, you know, again, um, looking in a nostalgic way, um, because I called him and he picked up the phone. I mean, so, you know, I don't know how often that would happen now. I, I work with artists all the time. My The book that I just finished had 17 artists. Um, it's it's rare that you can obviously get an artist directly on the phone without having to, you know, navigate their their studio, Um, but I, this was a long time ago, and I um, love catalog Grey's and A's. I'm completely, as a print specialist, um, dependent on them. I rely on them for, you know, knowledge all the time, and I just have a real love affair with them, and so I knew that my, I, it was kind of a crazy idea, because I didn't have that background, but I knew that I knew I relied on these um, and loved these these documents and felt like um, there were certain artists that just didn't have have their due and didn't have these kind of resources available to people um, and I feel like with a color Grayson there's no better way to really understand and access an artist without seeing all of their work all together in one place. I mean that's really where you understand the narrative. And so I literally picked up the phone. I mean I was lucky again it was a friend at Sotheby's Tracy Williams who I knew was his friend and so she put in a good word for me and I'm grateful to her always to that. Um, and I picked up the phone and and just sort of you know asked him about that opportunity and he was completely open to it. And it's funny because, again, this was at a time when the market was quiet. You know, this was, um, John was at Sonneben, he wasn't at Marion Goodman yet. And so um, there, I wouldn't say there was an arbitrage situation, but there certainly was a way in to talking to artists and um, and to this kind of, Engagement again. That I would say that I'm. I'm still humbled that he said yes. But I, you know, I just. I think I got lucky. That's all it is.
1: Absolutely. So one thing that I really appreciate about uh, you and I is that we're both lovers of art history. For myself, I was obsessed with the history of photography when I was younger, and so I imagine you have an amazing compendium of catalog resumes. Do you have a favorite?
0: Oh gosh, no. But I can say I. used several as the template when writing John's Cabal and also I'm doing the same for right now I'm working on Bruce Nauman's, um and so there are certain uh Cabal um Klaus Oldenburg's for certain Roy Lixenstein's for certain that the level of scholarship is just so profound and I, and and the dedication I mean i I didn't get close to it with my volume, but um, and also color and aids really vary because you it depends on how accessible the artist is to you so um, you know obviously John was based in Los Angeles so actually in uh, at the time in Santa Monica when I was doing this, and so there was a distance and and not having that ability to be in, in his studio or in his archive in any given time, you know, was um, was a challenge. But um, but I certainly look to a lot of catalog raisonnés and, you know, they're real labors of love. I mean, and it's kind of, uh, it takes a crazy person to want to write a catalog raisonné, which I assume I'm one of them, because um, you're never finished. And, um, and there are always mysteries that are left unsolved. And they're... Um, and and it's, um, it, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a really joyful experience when you get to sort of piece it all together.
1: That's fantastic, um, it really is. So you've become somewhat synonymous with your efforts to bridge art and fashion. Let's discuss an amazing collaboration you did in 2013 working alongside Ellsworth Kelly. Tell us about that project and the impetus for that collaboration.
0: Oh, um, well, um, I can say that working with Ellsworth for sure has been the most extraordinary opportunity of my career. Um, I um, adored working with him. And I I um, was putting together a complete collection of his prints that then became the opening exhibition at LACMA when they um, did say the, the Renzo Piano Pavilion. And so when I was doing research for that and getting all the prints together for um, the curator's show, I came across a photo from a Guggenheim exhibition of um, a woman by the name of Ann Weber, who was Wearing an Ellsworth Kelly dress that he made from 1952, and I was just kind of like awestruck when I saw this photo. Um, one, because it was just extremely glamorous and beautiful, but more importantly, because it very much, when I saw the date and realized that this predated the Mondrian dress from the 70s and wasn't posthumous like the Mondrian dress with uh, with Yves Saint Laurent, but was but was made directly by the artist. But most significantly, that um, the dress really predated all the shaped canvases that Ellsworth had made and, um, but had all those signifiers. And so I really felt that it was an important piece of art that was beyond a dress, but almost um, just a, an important piece of art. And so I asked Ellsworth where the dress was because I am a member of the Custom Institute and thought it was an important work of art that needed to leave, live at the Met. And it also, um, and there's a lot of backstory to this dress, but at any rate, Ellsworth um, realized that the dress was lost. And then so I proposed the idea to have it remade. And so we spent two or three years doing that together. And we enlisted um, Francisco Costa, who at the time was the creative director at uh, Calvin Klein, who was the perfect, perfect designer to um, look to Ellsworth and to remake this dress exactly how he wanted it remade. And we spent a lot of time together, including going to the Philadelphia Art Museum because the dress that I mentioned from 52 was cut from fabric when he was living as an expatriate in the south of France. And the remainder of that cut fabric became a very important panel painting that lives at the Philadelphia Art Museum. So Francisco and I made a pilgrimage to the museum um, and had the work pulled out in storage. So we did a lot of research and worked um, hand-in-hand with Ellsworth to get the dress made. And, you know, it was just kind of glorious. I mean, there were moments when Ellsworth was like draping fabric on my body in his studio. I mean, it just was like a, a very special thing. But what I think that was most important about doing that project is that Ellsworth, the dress was made, when we remade the dress, it was unfortunately closer to the end of his life. It was when he was 90. Um, It was around his 90th birthday when we we, um, unveiled the dress. And his first dress was made at the beginning of his career in 52. And what he mentioned to me was that he always wanted to remake that dress, but didn't feel that it was the right time. And now at the end of his, Uh, later in his life he felt very comfortable because again this idea of art and fashion there they were they 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 didn't have to be so separate and he felt that now it really was a time when it could be embraced and be considered a dress but also art and could and it's funny if you go to his um, website the foundation's website it's one of the highlighted things that he puts next to his paintings. And so, again, there isn't this idea of categorization, of separating things. And um, I think that was really the most special aspect of of making the dress aside from just being an elser's presence.
1: Absolutely. You know, I've always um, admired this quote by Kelly, where he says, I'm not interested in the texture of a rock, but in its shadow. Um, And I think that there's, uh, you know, some wonderful... um, some wonderful elements uh, that, that you've imparted there as well. Um, so, you know, furthermore, I agree with you. Today, art is predominantly used as a branding tool in fashion, right? It's, it's fashionable to be affiliated with art. And we can yes. look You know, at collaborations with V-Tone, with Jeff Koons and Murakami and Richard Prince, not to mention causes collaborations over the years with Nike, and even more recently, Daniel Arsham being, uh, uh, becoming the artistic director of the Cleveland, Cla- Cleveland Cavaliers. And so I ask you, what do you foresee as the future of this association between art and fashion?
0: Um, I don't think it's going away. I think more and more because I do pay attention to fashion and because they are at a, such a critical moment. Fashion is so halted. It was halted before this virus, but now it's even more stifled and they have to re- consider who they are and how they make things. And it was a crazy cycle for many designers to, to sustain a business that, the way they were. So obviously working with an artist is a very um, smart way to reignite a brand, to um, also to keep something very fresh and alive. And, um, And so I don't think it's going to be going away anytime soon. I think almost every brand is looking right now in that direction. And I think that this wasn't the case, you know, certainly 15, 20 years ago, I could name a handful of great collaborations that were happening, but now it's really hard to keep up with it. Um, But I'm not so sure that there's an audience that's going to get so tired of this right now. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really pushing a lot of, of the responsibility on the artist and, and sort of, uh, um, and so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But again, I, I think we're only seeing the beginning of it.
1: I agree with you there. No question about it. So you're now gearing up, as you mentioned, to work on a project with one of the true luminaries in art, arguably the most important American artist working today, Bruce Nauman. And so do tell us what's in store for the two of you.
0: Oh well, um, it's not really the two of us. So uh, Bruce Salmon, you know, lives, um, you know, in New Mexico on a ranch, um, and so my work is really kind of solitary, too. And 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 um, and it's in based in New York. So you know, my job is really to put together all of his uh, the research for all of of his prints and multiples and to compile them and to work and find all the information through the publishers and, and to put it together as a cohesive whole. And he'll review that at the end or, and, or his, um, his gallerist, Angela Westwater. But you know, what I love is, um, there's certain artists that I've been lucky enough to work on projects for like him, like, uh, um, John Baldessari and also even like Jasper Johns where they really do what they do and then I try to bring my projects to them and just let them um, put whatever marks they want on it. So for example with the Baldessari print catalog John decided at the end to write a very small forward. He also decided to design the cover but the actual content, the information inside, um, he kept you know, for me to do, and and certainly there is a separation of church and state when you do a A. It's it's um it's a little different than I would say what an exhibition might be with an artist, where they probably play a much bigger hand at um, at sort of you know how, what it looks like and and what's shown than a A. Sure. Uh, yeah.
1: Naumann's- seminal video piece, Corridor, from 1970. I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of it. It's an incredible example mm-hmm. of closed, uh, closed-circuit, closed single-channel work in the vein of June Pike's TV Buddha, uh, and one of my favorites, Stena Vasulka's All Vision, which I actually um, had the uh, the honor of, uh, including in my inaugural exhibition 20 years ago. And so oh, wow. Bruce has really had a profound impact, certainly on on my way of thinking and experiencing art over my lifetime, as I know he has for so many people. So that's incredible that you're gonna be uh, collaborating yeah, no, on I'm, this project.
0: I'm, I'm grateful and, and really humbled by it, to be honest. I, I, you know, thank you.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, Sharon, where your love of fashion came from. My excuse <laughs> is simple. My, my parents have worked in the fashion business for 45 years, so what's yours?
0: Um, I think it comes from, you know, I'm not sure except again i'm from richmond virginia so i didn't have a lot of exposure to fashion brands or you know things like that i mean i think part of it to be honest was places like mtv which i think were really innovative exciting seminal places where i got information you know we didn't have the internet i wasn't like so into magazines at the time but i certainly was glued to mtv and sort of was watching what, how, you know, people like David Bowie were dressing, or anybody, or the the VJs, or whatever they were called at the time. Um, but I also was really informed, not directly by fashion, but again, by architecture. And I grew up going um, to the Greenbrier in West Virginia, which is this amazing resort, um, that was, and the interior was designed um Um, by Dorothy Draper, and I think it was that kind of patterning, um, you know, that I was just, that blew my mind, and I also, I think, quite frankly, because I'm a really, you know, you're a very tall person, I'm a very small person, I think fashion was always a way for me to feel like I could be seen, and I've always taken it super seriously in terms of I'm a visual person, and you know how I look or what I see is just as important as anything else. And so I've always just really taken fashion um, as an incredible other way to um, let my eyes, you know, wander and um, also to express myself. So, you know, I'm just, again, I think it came more from what I had access to, which was again, architecture and maybe TV than actual um, People who influenced me in fashion, because I didn't directly have, you know, people around me like um, perhaps like your parents were to you.
1: Sure. Um, well, I, I I think I can uh, say unequivocally that, undeniably, you have a unique and original style sen- style sensibility that that is entirely your own. Um, so nearly fifty. 50- Fifty years ago, American great Jasper Johns made a conceptual art project for MoMA titled Techniques and Creativity, published within the exhibition catalog that invited viewers to finish his work, his famed target from 1970, on their own. Inspired by this revolutionary idea, you and filmmaker Amanda Benchley have just published open studio do-it-yourself art projects by contemporary artists, for which, as you mentioned, you enlisted 17 renowned artists to make new works and provide instructions to recreate them. Speak about the impetus and the experience of this project.
0: Um, Well, this was, again, I mentioned with the the catalog raisonne, it was a real act of love. Um, So was this, this was a really fun project because unlike other projects where I work with one artist at a time, this was kind of maddening in a great way because I was we were working with 17 exceptional artists all at once um, to put the book together. And we basically went in and asked um, sort of something that was probably a larger ask than the way we proposed it um, to the artist. But we basically asked them to make an art project that we could share with. Readers, and then um, also included in the book are these incredible inserts that the artists made, and that was done in the same way that, that for example, when I make an addition for something. Um, and to be honest, Bryce, it was really a way to, to get into the studio that was different, and was a way to make art feel a little more accessible and to sort of understand the mysteries of of their process. Um, and so what we found when we went into the studios is that unlike other studio visits that maybe you've been lucky enough to go to and certainly I've been lucky enough to go to um, where instead of the artist talking about their work in um, a very serious way or, or a curator walking through their studio and doing that on their behalf um, this was completely different and so the artists were like very free, um, and really had, I I think it disarmed them when we went in and did these projects with them, um, because they felt really comfortable, and we got to access other aspects of not only their personality, but of how they make things. So, you know, for example, when we went in to Mickalene Thomas's studio, um, she had incredible jazz music in the background. She basically, when she was doing her project with us, which is this collage project so that you can turn into an artist book? You know, she was like dancing around the studio, and that's not to say she doesn't do that probably all the time. But it felt really personal, and it felt really accessible, and it felt um, like like a lot of joy. And that's what this book, more than anything else, does is that you know, I, I feel really lucky to have been a part of it because it's a way to see how much fun it is to get your hands dirty and to make something. Um, But it does come to answer your question from a really long line of artists who've made works like this in the past and books that are already out into the world. So at that incredible Do It compendium um, that I always think about and and there are artists like, like Lawrence Weiner, who are in our book and who did make a stencil for us, who've done that before with Solowitt and other artists in more artist edition projects, but um, but it stems from a love of artist books and of art editions
1: amazing just an incredible uh project i mean every artist is literally my favorite artist from julie maheret to to john curran to george Condo. to cause um, it's an extraordinary concept to execute and i i congratulate you and amanda and um at this it time i'd like to thank, thank yeah at this time i'd like to thank you sharon in the words of nauman of course. i'll talk you'll listen and i think it's fair to say we're all listening closely to what you have to say sharon so until next time cheers
0: Thanks, Rice, I really appreciate it.